and follow the, the poignancy of the story. As Matthew tells it, the gospel writers are consummate storytellers. The gospels have come together as the story of Jesus, um, but each gospel writer wants to put a different kind of perspective on their, on their s- telling of that story. Um, the, uh, the gospel writers were working with uh, collections of Jesus' teaching that were shared among the believers at the time um, with their own experience of Jesus at times and with people that follow Jesus. And uh, when they write their gospel, when they tell their story, um, they do so with a very careful uh, attentiveness uh, guided through the Holy Spirit to make certain aspects of the life of Jesus come out uniquely. That's why it's a blessing that we have four Gospels. Some people are like, why do we have four Gospels? It makes it more complicated. Actually, it makes it much more exciting because Jesus can't be captured in just one way of telling the story. Each of us, if we told the story of Jesus, would tell it with just a little bit different fine point, not because Jesus is different, it's just because he's amazing. And what we find here in chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. Um, Chapter 4, starting with verse 12, is that Matthew has done a careful job telling kind of like the history of Jesus. We start with the genealogies, which to modern Americans just sounds terribly boring, but it's important for a reason I'll tell you in a minute. And and, uh, some of the experiences of of uh, the, the circumstances around Jesus' birth, you know, the wise men that come and the giving of gifts and the, the terror of Herod and, and so forth. And now in chapter four, we find Jesus as an adult uh, entering his public ministry. It comes right off the, 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 um, the tales of the baptism of Jesus and the temptation. Very, very powerful uh, experiences for Jesus And now he's going to move forward in bringing his own ministry to people. And so there's a little bit of a turning point here. Um, In chapter 12, uh, the the, um, text that we have before us today has kind of two sections. Um, the, uh, The beginning of Jesus' ministry and his public preaching, and then uh, the calling of the disciples, kind of a general picture, and then kind of a specific uh, storytelling here. Um, In verse 12, we find out that when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Now, Matthew's being kind of efficient here. All right, so he's not telling everything that we need, or everything that could be known. He's telling us just what we need to know to kind of move forward in the story. We don't know why John was arrested, actually. We have to wait until chapter 14. It's not an important detail right now. And neither do we know why Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Uh, I love Israel uh, from a geographical point of view because it's so simple, right? It basically has one straight line on the west, and one, which, is the, uh, which is the ocean, and then you have one straight line on the east, which is the uh, Jordan River, uh, and, and then you have north and south. So even somebody like me can get that. It's like a, it's like a long rectangle. And Galilee is in the northern part of the country. Jerusalem's kind of midway, and then you have desert in the south. So, <clears throat> Nazareth, and, and if you look in the last book of your Bibles, which, as you know, is the book of maps, if you have a proper Bible, um, you'll see that uh, Nazareth uh, and, uh, and the Sea of Galilee are kind of in the northern section of the country. 
And then you have the Sea of Galilee uh, up there. And, uh, and so this is some of the geography here. And was Jesus fleeing Herod? D- did he, was there an emotional response to John's imprisonment? It just doesn't say, but it's important that he get up there, and here's why. This is the punchline of what Matthew wants to say. He's leaving Nazareth, which is his birth town, his hometown, <laughs> and he's going to Capernaum, which is a little village on the Sea of Galilee. Why? Here's why. It's playing a part of a much larger picture that is directly related to you and to me. Because there's a prophecy in Isaiah that speaks about this region. And even this is kind of a truncated quote. Um, it, 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 uh, it kind of pulls out some phrases from this prophecy. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, these are tribes of Israel and if you read in Second Kings and earlier, you'll see that, that um, the tribes of Israel kind of populate the, the land of Israel by territories that are given to them, to each of the 12 tribes. So you'll often hear the land of, you know, tribe. And so uh, Zebulon and Naphtali are in this Galilee, Sea of Galilee, northern region. And Isaiah says that in this region, there, he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, I won't go into great detail about why that's the case, uh, but it's just important to know that the word Gentiles is the important word here. Um, it's talking about non-Jewish population. And at the time of Jesus, indeed, the, there are Roman citizens in the northern areas that are segregated from the Jewish areas. So Galilee of the Gentiles to Matthew's listeners would, would kind of stimulate their thinking about those areas of the Galilee region where there weren't Jewish people. But Gentiles stands for something. It, it stands for those people who do not know God. And this is the point that, that Matthew wants to clarify for us, that Jesus' move into this region is part of the dynamic, active, incredible, extraordinary mission of God to reach people that do not know him. And that was always the point. Here's what I mean by that. Way back in the beginning, you may know that Abraham is the, the one that God calls to be the first Jewish person, basically. Do you, do you know that story? He's way up in what's now Iraq, and, and God calls to him in a very famous phrase in Jewish tradition, lech lecha, come out, leave. It's very similar to what Jesus will say to Peter and Andrew, and James, and John. God is a missionary God, and he calls us out of darkness, and he called Abraham out of the land of his darkness, and he says, come out of there. I have a plan for you. And the plan is called a covenant. It's a relationship. God, God said to Abraham, I'm going to form something that's never been formed before. It's a relationship with you and your son and your grandson. I'm gonna form a people and through you, 
all the nations would be blessed. Nations and Gentiles are virtually the same term. So here's the way it works. God's calling the Jewish people into a special relationship so that through them and their knowledge of God, the Gentiles would also come into a special relationship. And at the end of time, all people will be in this special relationship. That's really the story of the world. You can say, well, what? why that story? Well, that's just the way God wanted it. God likes bringing two things together. He loves it when there's a man and a woman together. Not just a man, not just a woman. I, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be married. I'm, I'm talking like big picture here, okay? <laughs> like when he created people, he didn't create just a man or just a woman. He created men and women because together there's something about that. That, 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 that demonstrates God's nature. Uh, he, he's a triune God, one God in three persons. There's something about the fact that there's Jews and Gentiles being reconciled together that's very powerful, and that's part of what's going on in the world. And so the dynamic thing that we're seeing here is that Jesus' move into the land of the Gentiles is taking over the enemy territory so that Gentiles could know God. Who are the Gentiles? I know there's one Jewish person here at least today, all right, because uh, I can see there's probably another, there's, we have two Jewish people. See, even at least two Jewish people, maybe even more. This is, I hope this is not offensive to you. <laughs> but it's a demonstration that number one, God is faithful to the Jewish people, just like he said, who believe in him, and to the Gentile people, we're not left in darkness. We're, we've been brought into the light. It's working. And what I want us to know, because today's about discipleship, I want us to know that, that first of all, we need to know things about ourselves that we can't know apart from Christ if we're gonna be a disciple. And the first thing we need to know, particularly for us, well, for those of us who are Jewish people, God favored you by calling Abraham, not because you were good, but because you're the object of God's love. The Gentiles, we have no right to be a part of that story except that God is good and wanted us to be a part of that story. So the first thing in knowing yourself as a disciple is to know yourself as one who God sees and who God seeks. That's the first thing we realize. Matthew's not just giving us details of a story. Oh, Jesus moved to Capernaum. He's saying... Jesus' move into Capernaum is a demonstration that God's faithfulness to the covenant promise is being fulfilled in Jesus. God is on the move. That's how we have to know ourselves, first of all. It's what we're gonna read about in all of the gospel stories. Jesus says in the gospel of Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the son of man, which is a, a euphemism for himself, the Messiah, came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Galilee of the Gentiles. This is what that prophecy says. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
Paul says it this way, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, to know ourselves as a disciple is, is to experience having been found. In fact, I don't know if you're comfortable doing it, but you could even place your hand on your heart or you can close your eyes. I like to just kind of contemplate together or just focus in prayer. You can say to yourself, I have dwelt in the region and shadow of death. I know fear. I know anxiety. I know temptation. I know sin. I know idolatry. But I'm one whom God seeks. I'm one who God sees. God sees me and he seeks me. A light has dawned on me and in me. I see the face of Jesus Christ who sees me. This is something that we can know about ourselves. Because to be a disciple isn't just an intellectual thing. It's an experience of Jesus that we take with us into our relationships. Um, With that uh, description, Jesus then moves into his public ministry and he he shares much of what John said. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there's a couple things I want to note here in verse 17. First of all, he's preaching. The first thing he does is he preaches. It's not a bad word, preach. (laughs) It's the key part of Jesus' ministry at the beginning which means that there's urgency. Preaching and teaching are related but they're different. Preaching has a sense of urgency. There's content but there's an appeal. You're trying to get at something. And so he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I found a very interesting quote from (laughs) an early church father, famous one, John Chrysostom, and I I just want to read it because it's it's very interesting. He says, in this beginning, uh, Jesus speaks nothing severe or burdensome, as John had said concerning the axe being laid to the root of the tree, in other words, do you remember, if, if this doesn't ring a bell, just don't worry about it, but in John's teaching, he had this kind of sense in which the ax is being laid to the tree and the winnower is coming and there's gonna be a great fire and a great burning. And John Christensen noticed that that's not what Jesus says here. He puts first things merciful, preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven. So at first blush, it seems to us like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is some kind of an awful thing. But that's, that's, that's not, we're missing something, which is why I like that quote from John Chrysostom. He's saying, no, wait, wait a second. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a merciful and gracious message. Part of it has to do with our understanding of what it means to repent. It's not, it's not just whipping us for doing bad things. Repentance basically means this. It means to turn away from idols. That's what it means to repent. Idolatry is the worst thing It's the worst thing. It's what God spent 2,000 years of Jewish tradition rooting idolatry out of the Jewish people when they were ready finally to bring the gospel through Jesus Christ to us who are Gentiles. It's hard 
to turn away from idols. Now, if we think of idols as statues that we make that we bow down to, that's probably not what we're used to, but how many of us are worshiping images all the time? Has there ever been a more image-based culture than the United States of America? We look at images every, almost every minute of the day, I'll bet we see an image that's telling us what we should look like, what we should be like, how we should talk, which people to hang out with and not to hang out with. We are obsessed with idols. Idols tell us who we are. They, They inform our sense of identity. We bow down to them because we think that they're giving us something that we need to to live. And it's not something we can do on our own to turn away from idols. It requires the Holy Spirit to set us free. And that's why the giving up of idols isn't just a personal thing like going on a diet. The giving up of an idol requires actually not just giving up something, it requires embracing something different. Well, embracing someone different. That's how we repent of an idol. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a a moment of judgment coming where those who worship idols will suffer terrible judgment and separation from God. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I will set you free from your slavery to these idols. That's what repentance is. And that's why this is good news. I love Jesus because there's, it's an honest message. There's no trickery. There's no riddles. There's no confusion. It's very straightforward. If you want to know what Jesus is saying to you, it's very simple here. Acknowledge and repent of idolatry and embrace him is the moment of decision. Now, as we're going to see later on in the Gospel of Matthew, this is very good news for poor people, for the people who suffer, for people who are hungry and thirsty. They know exactly what they're getting. They're getting the warm embrace of somebody who loves them and can help them. For those who are very strong and they love their idols, this is a little bit of a harder message. I would put myself in that category. So to be a disciple is one who can say, and we can do this exercise again of just saying it and meaning it, I repent of my sin. I repent of worshiping idols. I acknowledge that God is my father and Jesus is my king and I turn to him as my source of life. I worship him alone and I belong to his kingdom. Amen. That's what it means to to follow Jesus, is to acknowledge that he is the source of our life. Now, Matthew's version moves quickly from here into kind of a call and response, and and this is where uh, Jesus moves now into calling his disciples. Um, Now, uh, there's a lot I'd like to say here about this. Number one, particularly for those of us, again, who are Gentiles, um, I used to read this and just assume that, and, and not without justification, uh, but I'm supposed to be like these disciples, and, and we are supposed to be like them, and I'll get to that. However, but first, there's something I don't want us to miss. All right, the, Jesus was talking to the Jewish people who would save us. 
All right, in other words, I'm, I'm like, if I'm watching a movie, these are the heroes, and I sure hope, right, that they do the right thing because my life depends on it. Do, do you see what I'm saying? In other words, it's not that I'm imitating them first. First, I'm just hoping that they pull through because my salvation depends on their ability to actually obey Jesus and take the gospel to the world because if they don't, I'll never know. Do you see what I'm saying? There's, there's a kind of an interesting drama here that kind of skips by us, particularly if we've grown up in the church, and we, we jump quickly to just saying, oh, I'm like Peter, or I'm like Andrew. I need to do what they do. We, we do, but first, let's just read this, as, like, let's just watch it as the drama that it is, which is like, wow, I, I, hope, you know, I hope this works out. <laughs> because there's a lot at stake and it makes me love the disciples all the more and the Jewish followers of Jesus because you realize, do you realize what the Jewish followers of Jesus went through to be faithful to their calling to take the gospel out to the, the Gentile world? I mean, talk about the cost of discipleship. We owe, the, that's, Paul said, we owe the Jewish people a debt because it wasn't a foregone conclusion kind of in the drama, so to speak. I mean, it was in God's providence. I'm not saying that, but you know, we, we have to realize that these are real people. They made real choices. They made real sacrifices, just like you and me. And it's extraordinary because, again, they can't do this without Jesus. Jesus calls them, and what he says is, I will make you fishers of men. He did not say, Peter, you are ex you're the most extraordinary person. How would, you know, can you use your talents, you know, to be who you already are? No, that's not the way it happened. Jesus gives the disciples their identity. They don't know themselves apart from Jesus. We don't know ourselves apart from Jesus. Jesus gives them their vocation. He gives them their identity. He even names them. Later on in the story, you know, you'll see that he names Peter. He calls Peter. And I love this because this is such a direct contrast to the spirit of this age, which says that I get to name myself. I get to choose my identity. I mean, it's like you, you're almost persecuted if you would ever suggest to somebody that you can't name yourself, that you can't say on your own who you are, that you have the right to say, well, this is my gender, and this is who I am, and you just have to accept it. We're in a profoundly upside-down culture, and it's hurting people terribly it's compounding anxiety and confusion and brokenness. People are desperately confused because they think that they get to decide who they are. But that's not how it works. I mean, in a healthy family, hypothetically, I'm not trying to put, you know, let me recast that. In, in a family where there's love that's expressed and communicated, okay, that's how children know who they are. Children know who they are because somebody in the family system is able to love them and they experience that love and in that love they know who they are. 
fundamentally, we all fail at this. That's the point. We need Jesus Christ in our life to be the one that says who we are. Because look at these guys. Look at anybody in the Bible. I mean, if we had named ourselves, we'd be calling it Peter the Betrayer. Hey, Betrayer! You know, imagine if Jesus stood on the shoreline saying that. Um, You know, why do we pick on doubting Thomas? Why is he, he's the only guy that's called by his bad side, you know? Why not confessing Thomas? The Lord and my, you know, everybody, you know, hey, doubter, you know, what about David? Hey, murderer, adulterer, like how much more bad can you get than David? Abraham, he's a liar. He lied through his teeth that Sarah was his sister because, you know, the king of Egypt, he said, man, she's a good-looking woman. I think I want her in my harem. And so, He's the king, so you don't want to do, so he says to Moses, hey, who is, who is this chick? Uh, it's my sister. Oh, how about I give you a lot of money and I'll take her? And, and he does. The rabbis go to great lengths to try to make it seem not as bad as it looks. Oh, he wept all night long. Well, the Bible doesn't say he wept all night long. We have to put that in there because otherwise it looks like Abraham is uncomfortably silent about the whole deal. My point is this. These are amazing men. I'm not trying to diminish them. I'm just trying to say that they're not perfect. Paul was a persecutor. But, and what can we say about ourselves? I'm a coward. I don't know. I, 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 I fear things. But God doesn't let that dictate his perception of you. He, he, he's not worried about that. He doesn't say, Peter, you're, 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 a, you're a betrayer. He says, I will make you a fisher of men. That's a great blessing. And that's why these genealogies are really important. The genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham, the father of all nations, the father of faith. Even Gentiles, Paul said, can call Abraham father. He's not a perfect man. And as we read through that genealogy, we see murderers and adulterers, prostitutes, Gentiles, people that God grafted into the lineage of the Messiah. And he hasn't stopped doing that. You and I are grafted into that lineage. Our names are written in the book of life. We sang that earlier. This is what uh, the Apostle John says in one of his letters, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So Jesus is the one who gets to say who we are, specifically, and that's, why, and that's why it's important to know him and to listen to him. And that's why immediately they left their nets, verses 20 and 22. It's an expression of how compelling Jesus is and how compelling his mission is. And I'll get to that in a second. I want us to just to affirm that we can say to ourselves, I am a follower of Jesus. I watch him. I listen to him. The more I know him, the more I am free to follow. 
we can say he calls me. He alone gives me my identity and my purpose. When I am with him, I know myself better. I know what I'm here for. I can trust him with all the most important details of my life, and he will help me know how to care for them. Amen. And I just want to focus on that for a minute, that they left their nets immediately. That, that immediacy comes because Jesus is so compelling. It's less about the disciples' character, and it's more about Jesus' amazingness. So Jesus is able to, um, to be so compelling that the disciples follow immediately. And that's why Matthew says this twice. Immediately they left. Uh, uh, Peter and, and Andrew and then James and John. They don't hesitate. Because why, why would they? There's something about that exchange that's so compelling. And we have to look at Zebedee for a minute the father. Now, you could read this at first and say, gosh, that guy got the bad end of the bargain. I mean, here, you know, one minute, Zebedee is there with his boys, you know, the family business, mending their net. It's what a great thing. What a, what a nice gig. And all of a sudden, the two boys are jumping ship. Now, you, you could think that that would be very disruptive to Zebedee. Matthew gives us no details because that's not the story that he's telling. But just to put it in some context, you know, Jesus knows that one of the commandments is to honor your father and mother. And Jesus did. In fact, it was one of the last things he did on the cross. He took care of Mary by, by asking John to, to, to serve her and support her. He healed Peter's mother. I mean, Jesus knows what it's like to care for parents. And oftentimes you'll find Jesus teaching style his ministry. He's using hyperbole, as it were, to make a point. He'll say later on, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. That's a teaching technique to show that when God is your father, every other relationship is reframed within that one. Our relationship with Jesus changes all other relationships. And in part, Jesus is saying, so to speak, I will take care of Zebedee. I am Zebedee's God. I know how to meet Zebedee's need. And undoubtedly, I'm sure, James and John took care of their family. On the other hand, followers of Christ will find themselves in their family life letting go of the status quo. The, the, the Christian life is a missionary life. It changes. It changes over time. And do you know why? Because this life is not the final life. Our life will consummate in the life to come. It's actually quite freeing to think that I don't have to expect this life to give everything that I want or know can be given. Every relationship I have I know there could be more. I know there's more it could yield. It never seems to quite finish before I have to say goodbye. And yet in the new world, that will not be a problem. And I'm grateful for that. That's why fathers and mothers can let their children serve God in places that are far flung, as missionaries, for example. It's why children can be assured that their parents will 
move through their phases of life being cared for and that there will be wisdom for every family to know how their family addresses their own unique context because every family is different. You can't compare your family with any other family. But what you can say is God is dynamically at work within your family and that is something that God owns and that we follow and that we trust. God will take care of what you care about. That's what I want us to hear. God will take care of what you care about. So I just want to end by saying a couple of things when we think about ourselves as disciples. First of all, God went to great lengths to, to reach Jews and Gentiles, even by going into the very heart of the land of darkness where we live Jewish followers of Jesus went through a long journey of transformation to become the sorts of people who would bring the knowledge of God to the Gentiles. And we're, as Gentiles, the fruit of that. We're invited, all of us, to know God, to repent of knowing the wrong things and to put our trust in him. And this is the, the final word, is that this is how the kingdom spreads. This is how you and I are empowered to be disciple-making people because when we experience Jesus in the little ways that we've tasted this morning, we have something to say to other people who are dwelling in the land of darkness. This is how the kingdom spreads. And it'll come to a beautiful conclusion. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known and we can experience even that now in our relationship with Jesus Christ to know ourselves as saved, to know ourselves as called, to know our identity as he speaks it to us, and to be able to share that great gift with many other people who are caught in a much more desperate place. Amen.